you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, we're going to finish out Mark 2 and begin chapter 3. Starting in verse 18, Mark 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, And then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath... He was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us to see you in the scripture today. Help us to understand more fully your ministry, your authority, and God, help us to submit to you. Lord, I ask for your Holy Spirit to to bring us interpretation, to bring us understanding today. Thank you for being here in our midst, and would you turn our eyes to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage this week holds three stories that are rounding out this section of Jesus revealing the purpose behind his ministry and the authority that he has. Chapter 2 began with Jesus healing a paralytic man, and chapter 3 is beginning with Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. And in between, we see the effects of Jesus' ministry and the increasing confrontation with the religious leaders. All are witnesses to amazing, miraculous healing signs that Jesus performs, including the religious authorities. But their common refrain throughout this section is, why? Why does he think he can forgive sins? Why does he dine with sinners and tax collectors? 
Why aren't they fasting? Why do they think they can do that on the Sabbath? See, there are certain things about Jesus that are undeniable. But the Pharisees were having a hard time fitting him into their understanding of the Messiah. The Pharisees' response in many ways is not unique, as cultures throughout the centuries have had the same reaction to Jesus, where certain things are undeniable, but they wouldn't accept all of him. Some cultures saw the power that Jesus had to drive out evil spirits and perform miracles, and so they just try to take those powerful parts of Jesus and add them to their religion. Others like the leadership of Jesus, how he started a worldwide movement with just 12 followers. And so they try to take leadership principles from Jesus. Even still today, it is accepted and even popular to take his moral and social ethic, the love for neighbor, the care for the poor, the self-sacrifice. But it's hard for our postmodern Western world to accept the miraculous, the claims that Jesus is God, and the necessity of repentance. There are things about Jesus that are undeniable, but the gospel of the kingdom proves to be incompatible with man-made religious constructs. Ever since sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve, people have been distorting the truth about God and continuously creating religion. Man-made religion is about serving self. It's about fitting in with what is popular. It's about holding power over others. And what will become very evident through this passage today is that Jesus has come to save us from the bondage of man-made religion and to turn us back to the truth. And the part that is going to be most challenging for us today is sometimes even our Christian traditions and preconceived understandings can come from the very false religions that Jesus came to save us from. I want to read again this first story. Starting in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This passage opens with the followers of Jesus coming to him and asking him a question about fasting. Then, in typical Jesus fashion, he gives them a whole lot more than they bargained for. The question comes from recognizing three different groups that are at play here. There's the disciples of John the Baptist, there's the disciples of the Pharisees, and there's the disciples of Jesus. The people are asking Jesus, which teaching tradition does he ascribe to? John's group is fasting for the repentance and waiting on the Messiah to come. The Pharisees keep the fasts in the law, but they've also added two fasts a week as a sign of their piety and their devotion. Is Jesus ascribing to a tradition, or is he bringing a new rabbinic understanding to the law? Oftentimes, when it comes to a religious ritual, we want to know the same question. Jesus, 
Which way is the right way? How much is enough? Who has the best teaching? And Jesus' response is so interesting because he doesn't say that either of their practices were wrong. He also doesn't come back and say, well, you need to keep this fast for this many days and abstain from these things. Instead, what he says is, their rituals are missing the point. Their rituals have been emptied of the meaning that they were issued with. Though they are not bad in themselves, rituals devoid of meaning take their eyes off of Christ. Now, just to be clear, the problem was not fasting, but missing the heart and intention of fasting. To illustrate this point, he gives a short parable about a wedding feast. He says he is like the bridegroom, and his followers are like guests that are there to celebrate the wedding. It wouldn't be appropriate to do the fast of John's disciples because they don't need to wait for what is right there in front of them. They don't need to fast to show God their remorse over their sin like the Pharisees because the Messiah is there in their midst. They had gotten so caught up in the ritual of their fast, in the mode and the length and the timing of it, that they couldn't see the one that all their fasting had pointed them to. This isn't a time for mourning, it's a time for celebration. Jesus does not condemn fasting, but instead reinforces its importance. He says, there is a day where they will fast, and it's when the bridegroom leaves them. And this is Jesus' first allusion in Mark to his death. In that day, followers of Christ will return to fasting, creating in themselves a longing and an eager expectation for Christ's return, a mourning over sin, and an expectation of the day when Christ comes to make all things new. Now, we must understand that any ritual, any act, or any way of doing things can become empty and devoid of the wisdom that it was instituted with. That is just as true today as it was back then. Because of sin, we are tempted to make our faith all about the practice of our worship rather than the object of our worship whether it be in the songs that we sing or the instruments that we use, the position of our bodies in worship or the amount and length of our gatherings. We must see that these are modes and means of worship, but they are only as meaningful as they keep our eye on the object, the recipient of our worship. If we don't keep these things in check, it's just as silly as saying, Jesus, are you about chairs or pews? Jesus, do you prefer a wooden pulpit or an acrylic one? Let us not let the preferences in the mode of our worship take our eyes off of Christ. Jesus gave an answer to the question of fasting, but the question that remains is about tradition. Which teaching tradition does he ascribe to? Who does he follow? And to this he gives two short parables. The first is about clothing. If you try to fit the wrong kind of cloth as a patch, it will tear away from the garment and make a worse tear than before. The second is about wineskins. Now, wineskins were not one and done like the way that we use bottles and vessels today. An old wineskin is one that has been used up, that's at the end of its life. It will no longer be able to flex and hold the liquid, but will instead burst when it is filled. You see, the people have sunk into patterns and rituals and traditions. 
Their way of doing their faith is like a garment with holes in it. Or it's like a wineskin that is so rigid that it cannot hold wine. The gospel of the kingdom is like a fresh cloth. It's unshrunk, it's clean, and it's pure. The new cloth does not fit as a patch for old clothes. In the same way, Jesus' teaching is not like a rabbi's interpretation of the law, giving a new understanding to an old way or filling what seems to be a gap in understanding. The gospel of the kingdom is like new wine. It's fresh, it's clean, it's ready to age. The teachings of man-made religion are like an old wineskin. These worn-out rituals are not worthy of the gospel. The gospel is worthy of new wineskins. You see, Jesus has not come to give us a new set of rules or to tell us which days to fast on or to give us some spiritual ritual to do. Man is in bondage to all of these things. Even the people of God throughout the ages have taken the good gifts that God has given them. They distorted the laws and the sacrifices and made it just another man-made religion like the others. Jesus didn't come to give us a new system. He came to free us from these systems. Following Jesus isn't about meriting any kind of favor with God. If you remember from last week, there was nothing that we could do to qualify for salvation. In the same way, there is not a work that we could do to keep ourselves in God's grace. When we try to make our relationship with Christ about rules and rituals, we are like people who are mourning at a wedding. It doesn't fit. It misses the point. It takes our focus off of Christ. Do we not recognize what is right in front of us? This is time for celebration. This is time for rejoicing. Jesus has freed us from the bondage of man-made religion. Because we have been freed from this bondage, let's not submit again to it. We reduce Christ's saving work to nothing when we treat it like it's something we've earned through a ritual. We treat Christ like some other pagan god when we try to trade our good works and sacrifices for his favor. Instead of trying to fit Christ into our own system, let us reorient ourselves in submission to him and trust fully in his grace and his mercy. Now let's look at the next stories. Starting in verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the priest, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In this next scene, Jesus finds himself again under the scrutiny of the Pharisees. They notice that Jesus' disciples were plucking heads off the grain as they passed by a field on the Sabbath. The accusation is that the disciples were doing something that was not lawful on the Sabbath. 
The Sabbath is a day to set aside where there is no work to be done, but there is instead to be rest. The Pharisees ascribe to the Mishnah teaching, which parses out 39 different definitions of what exactly work is and therefore what is prohibited on the Sabbath. The disciples are not breaking an actual law from the Torah, but rather an interpretation held up as law by the Pharisees. And Jesus gives an interesting rebuttal because he doesn't start parsing the law right back to them. He doesn't get lost in a discussion about whether the grain was going to be stored in sacks or how far down the stalk was it being plucked off or how far it would be carried before it was consumed. Jesus instead gives them a story that exposes their bias and understanding. He brings up the story of David when David was on the run from Saul. David didn't have the opportunity to prepare for running for his life, and so he didn't have provisions. He went to the priest in Nob and asked for the common bread, but the only bread they had was the holy bread of the presence. The priest decided to give David and his men the bread that ceremonially was only to be eaten by the priests. Jesus' reason in telling this story is it shows that the priest's judgment was correct. In times of need, the law of mercy supersedes the ceremonial law. This exposes that they have parsed with so many subpoints what work is, but they've missed God's heart in giving the law. God's desire is not that we would analyze the prohibitions of the law, but that we would be eager to show mercy. We're going to pick up on this more in the next section. He further shows the Pharisees that they not only miss the intentions of the law, but they misunderstand the purpose of the Sabbath. Once again, he doesn't argue with them about the letter of the law that they have construed, but rather goes to the original intention of the law given. God instituted the Sabbath in the original creation days. Work for six days, rest on the seventh. It should be evident to us that God had a greater purpose in this for man because God has no need for rest. He doesn't get exhausted. He doesn't need to regain energy and resources. God doesn't need a nap on the couch. God instituted the day of rest, and he modeled it for us, not because it would be any benefit for him, but because he recognized our limitations and needs. Ultimately, this would stand as a weekly reminder that you and I are not God. No matter what in our week may have convinced us otherwise, whether the, it's the creative work that we do, the people that we manage, or the household that we oversee, we need a reminder that we are not God. We are not the ones in control of anything. And any good gift that we have comes from God alone. When we forget this gracious intention of the Sabbath, we start ascribing to a man-made system of religion Instead of relieving the burdens and granting rest, we will instead lay heavier burdens that no man can carry. The great irony of this is that by ascribing to rules about the Sabbath, it becomes more work in the name of rest. A day that is meant for refreshment and enjoyment becomes one of guilt and hardship. Jesus' new way, the new wine of the kingdom, is not a new teaching on the Sabbath, but rather a return to the heart of the law. The Sabbath is a gracious gift for man. 
The Pharisees are not alone in setting rules for the Sabbath. Many Christian traditions through the ages have wrestled with how Christians are to understand and observe the Sabbath. Some of you were probably raised in households or church traditions that had very strict understandings of what was to be avoided on Sundays. Even as Christians, we can reduce Sunday to not having any fun, no playing, no laughter, no yard work, no washing cars. You can only go to church and read your Bible. And if we're not careful, the traditions that we ascribe to will add more burdens to us and take us away from true worship on the Sabbath. Others of us may not struggle with too many rules on the Sabbath, but miss the whole point of it in the other end of the spectrum. We can easily take the Sabbath for granted by refusing rest. I believe in this age that this is where we are more likely to fall. This doesn't come from a permissiveness that you find in Scripture, but rather in reaction to the strictness from former generations, you want to treat the Sabbath as optional. We can be tempted to see the Sabbath is created for man, but we translate that to say, Sabbath is created for me time. I'll gather with my church family if it fits into me time. Instead of rest, I will use this day to get ahead in my career, to develop my side hustle, or manicure my lawn. We treat our seventh day as an extra day for cultivating, rather than a day for enjoying and finding refreshment. Whether you treat the Sabbath with strict rules or permissive living, both are missing the point. And both cause burdens on man. Rest is factored into the created order and the life of man because man needs rest. When we take a day off from working, we're forced to reflect. We're forced to remember that God is the one making the world spin. We're forced to remember that He is in control and we live in constant dependence on His provision and sovereign rule over life. And it's only when we take a step back from our hustle and our work that we will submit ourselves to His rule. God declared, six days you shall work, and the seventh day is for rest. From the beginning of creation, God declared an ultimate end to our striving and working where we would delight in God, give Him praise and honor, and enjoy Him. When we take a day of rest, we are practicing for the kingdom. We're practicing for when God, Christ returns, when He makes all things new, when all striving will cease. And Jesus' final claim in this section is that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He has authority to preach the kingdom. He has authority to forgive sins. So even over the Sabbath, He is Lord. Do we treat Him as Lord over the Sabbath? Do we seek His will to be done on our Sabbath days? Or have we already planned out our day of rest and are trying to fit Him into me time? We must stop trying to fit the way of Jesus into our old wineskins. By making the Sabbath about rules or by making it about us, we are submitting to the bondage of man-made religion. Both are systems that are in service to man, not God. What Jesus wants us to see is that in the name of rest, both systems are creating more work. Jesus has come to free us from that work and to give us true rest. Now, I want to be careful here not to give a to-do list as application because that could easily just become more man-made religion. 
So instead, I just have some questions for your consideration. If Sunday is the day that you set aside for rest, how can you keep that as a rest? How can you pursue refreshment for your body and your soul? How can you work in the other six days to make the seventh more restful? What does it mean for you to submit to Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath? And I want to also encourage you, reach out to someone who is older or more mature than you, an an older believer. Ask them how they practice Sabbath. Ask them what wisdom you could gain from them on the subject. Let's look to this final section, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. In this final section, we see the fruit of man-made religion. In the synagogue on the Sabbath, there was a man who needed healing. And if raising a hand to pluck the grain on the Sabbath was considered work, you better believe extending your hand to heal someone is work. The focus on personal piety, on rule following and traditions yields hard hearts. When your faith becomes all about what you are doing, that inward focus shuts you down from thinking about others. Unless, of course, you're trying to police their behaviors. This false, man-made religion creates and reinforces pride. This self-focus then leads to contempt for one's neighbor. It's easy to start thinking, well, I hold myself to this kind of standard. It's only right that others would join me up here on my ivory tower. When a neighbor is in need, there's then this self-justification. Well, I never would have gotten myself into that situation. Or maybe if they were more like me with their finances, they would have never found themselves here. Or I picked myself up by my bootstraps and didn't throw a pity party, so they can do the same. This arrogant, selfish, religious pride closes us off and creates separation between us and others. I want to take us back to last week's passage where Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees about associating with tax collectors and sinners. And we talked about how if we want to be with Jesus, we have to see ourselves as those in need of him. If we think we are righteous, we will miss out on the healing and forgiveness of sins that Jesus brings. This passage takes us a step further. Man-made religion not only causes us to miss out, but it hardens our hearts so that we will actually do harm in the name of God. A man is in their synagogue seeking out mercy from those around him, and rather than giving him aid, he is seen as bait for a theological trap. Their religious navel-gazing has reduced this man into a pawn in a game rather than an image-bearer of God. Jesus goes to the man and calls out to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm? 
to save a life or to kill? And these were rhetorical questions meant to expose their actions. They viewed this man first through the lens of their tradition rather than God's eyes. They interpreted the situation first through the ceremonial law rather than the law of mercy. This kind of self-righteous religious observance is alive and well today. And we may not hide behind Sabbath regulations, but when we see someone in need or we hear of injustice in the news or we know the needs of our neighborhood, the temptation is to sift all these things through our traditions, through our understandings, through our self-imposed religious rules to find some way to say, that's not my problem. That person is not my neighbor. I've done well enough to keep myself out of such a situation. Jesus' response is the same to us today. What does your tradition say about doing good? What does your understanding say about saving someone from harm? Because if it isn't about doing mercy, then your way is not the way of Jesus. This is not a religious system that can just add mercy into it. They cannot retrofit the message of Jesus of loving neighbor into their system. Their way is corrupted. It's broken. It's useless. They don't need a simple patch for their old way. They need a brand new wineskin if they want to accept the gospel of the kingdom. The people look upon Jesus in silence awestruck at his words. And Jesus looks back filled with righteous anger and grief. He is incredulous that they could have such hardness of heart. And then Jesus fulfills the heart of the law. He shows mercy to this man and he is healed. There are two responses that we can have to this event. The right and proper response is repentance. We must come before Jesus and confess that we have trusted in what is false, and this has led us to close our hearts to our neighbors and to forsake mercy. As we talked about last week, this is no time to cower away in shame, but sensing the guilt, sensing the Holy Spirit prodding us with conviction over our sins, we must run to Jesus because He is our only hope. His very mission is to be with sinners, to give them forgiveness, and lead them in the way of righteousness. The other response is that we would double down in our hardness of heart. The end of this passage tells us the Pharisees went out and held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, looking to destroy him. The Pharisees condemned Jesus for associating with tax collectors And yet they would go to a similar ruling party in order to conspire against God. I want you to see that if we refuse to repent, our hearts will conspire against Jesus, seeking to destroy him. When we see Jesus showing mercy to the weak, we will either be softened by his actions or we will be hardened even further. Our old selves find so much comfort in man-made religion. It's how we feel in control of our lives and of our futures. 
setting up rules and rituals. It makes us feel like we are righteous when we check off boxes. God did not give us the law to make us righteous. If we think we found righteousness by following rules, then we've deceived ourselves and we've distorted God's law. And what I want you to see today from these texts is that man-made religion comes from sin. It only brings death and destruction and further slavery to sin. I want you to see that trusting in man-made ways takes our eyes off of Christ and it puts them on ourselves. It increases the burden on us rather than giving us rest. Because it keeps us so focused on ourselves, man-made religion will harm others. My prayer for all of us today is that through these stories, we would see the destructiveness of legalism, but more importantly, the liberation that Jesus brings. Walking in grace is so much scarier than adhering to the constructs of man but it is the only way that is free. Jesus came to lift these burdens off of us. Jesus came to free us from the bondage of sin. Let us not willingly submit ourselves back to these old ways. The gospel of the kingdom is incompatible with man-made religion. The way of grace does not fit with rules about fasting and Sabbath regulations. When we trust in these things, our hearts will harden and seek to destroy Jesus. When we submit to Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, our hearts will find rest and we will be softened to love our neighbor as ourselves. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, as we reflect on these things, May we see the destructiveness of sin. May we see the destructiveness of legalistic ways that keep us in bondage to the law. But God, may we see the fruit of the gospel, the grace that you have given us that we have not merited our salvation and we cannot keep it by our own will, but you alone have paid the price and by your Holy Spirit you, are, you have made us new and are making us new. Lord, may we rejoice and celebrate in that and come to you with humble, repentant hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.